Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of This Is My Bourbon Podcast. I am your host, Perry. We have a little treat for you all today. Something, somebody very special here on the show. Marianne Eves, the master distiller at Castle and Key. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Perry. I'm, I'm so, excited. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you on. We've uh, kind of been chatting back and forth a little bit, trying to make this happen, and uh, it finally came around. We connected at an event last year, and um, you know, it was finally nice to put a name with a face and you know get to know you a little bit. So, just so happy to be able to sit down with you. Sure. <laughs> it finally worked out. <laughs> it did absolutely. Um, so, of course, we're going to be chatting with Marianne about uh, everybody's wondering, you know, what when's the bourbon coming out? So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, we're going to talk about where the inspiration for Castle and Key came from, the process that went into renovating um, the old Taylor Distillery, too. Um, but one thing I like to ask people when we start the show off is, what have you been drinking recently? So what have you been drinking recently, Marianne? We started this fun thing at Castle and Key. One of my distillery shift leaders um, decided that we should do a sample swab. So a lot of what I've been tasting recently is random things that I <laughs> probably never would have picked up myself. I have a sample. I'm, right now, I, I, ha I don't know what, it's, what it is because um, it doesn't have a label on it. But actually... When I've been out recently, I've been drinking either gin cocktails or cachaça. What's that? Cachaça is a Brazilian spirit. It's a lot like rum, but they don't want you to call it Brazilian rum. Is it, um, so at, uh, oh, what's the restaurant in the Summit in Lexington? Um, Texas Day Brazil. Okay, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think they serve it there. Oh, I'm sure they I do. I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, it's like super high proof. Right? Are we talking about the same thing? Or are we talking about something different? <laughs> I, some of it probably is super okay. high proof. I the ones that I tried were probably more reasonable. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe like the Americanized cachaça. Sure. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's yeah. It's a, a totally different flavor profile. And and what I find most interesting about it is their maturation process. I, I want to learn more about it still because I think that's something that could inspire a future product for us. Yeah. But they use all sorts of different types of wood, not not just one. Like we always use oak. Sure. Um, occasionally you'll see somebody finishing in a in a weird type of wood. But right. It's uh, it's really cool that that is one of the things that is the essence of their spirit are these different wood components. Right. Yeah. I, I want to make sure to. Uh, ask you too at some point about you know where you you see the um the future of the castle and key mm. spirits going to whether or not um finishing is is in the future too so we'll put a pin in that one and come back to it in a little bit for sure, sure. um can't say that i've had anything super interesting recently to drink i'm sticking with my daily turkey 101 for the most <laughs> part i had uh, at baker's last night for the first time in a while too just good old seven year 107 mm -hmm. but hadn't had it in a while revisited it and um it's good stuff it's good nice and, nice and affordable too, <laughs> just neat so yeah i that's typically the only way that i drink anymore um it's just neat but you know we went of course through the whole process of well you know mixed drinks and then on the rocks with a splash and then just on the rocks and then neat and that's just kind of where I've stayed with it yeah that's how I think that's how a lot of people evolve yeah yeah how, how do you normally drink bourbon 
Um, if, if I if it's, if it's one that I haven't tried before, I always go for it neat. Sure. Absolutely. Um, if it's a little bit spicy and I, I want to just sit there and sip it, I think throwing an ice cube in, it's a cool experience. But um, shh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, it, it chills it down and knocks some of the spice off of it. But it also changes how you um, experience the flavors as the ice dilutes it more and more, which I am a nerd about completely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, people always go, oh, they're, they're, they're always those purists that go, well, you have to drink it neat or you, you know, whatever. But, I mean, Freddie Johnson put it best. The, the best way to drink bourbon is just the way you like it. Yes, so absolutely. I don't see any problem with adding a cube or two of ice to it. Yeah, but whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. I, when I was first um, getting into the industry, I, I wasn't a whiskey drinker at all. So I was going around asking people, what do I need to do to even just tolerate it. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever love this stuff, but I need to at least be able to know whether it's good or bad so I know whether I'm doing my job. Sure. And it wasn't really until I went down to Mexico that I got the advice that kind of changed my mind about um, how I might approach developing a palate for whiskey. And I was talking to the guy. I'm like, you know, how do people drink tequila down here? Because, you know, up where I come from, we either do tequila shots or drink it in a margarita. And it just tastes better down in Mexico. <laughs> and he said his his uh, first piece of advice is encourage people to drink it however they want to drink it. Right. If they want to drink it in a margarita, go ahead. It's going to get you um, accustomed to what the flavors are of the base spirit of the spirit that you're putting into your cocktail in a way that, that you enjoy. And then um, his second piece of advice was drink good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was my first problem. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't drinking I was, stuff. Yeah, I, I had started on bourbon on the wrong foot. <laughs> Do you remember what your first bourbon or your first whiskey was? Oh, shoot. Should I say? Probably not. <laughs> now, that I, now that I said it was the wrong foot. <laughs> okay, I think that's Bot fair. That's bottom fair. shelf stuff, safe to say. All right. Yeah, Probably in a plastic bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you said at first that you weren't a, drink, a a whiskey drinker immediately. What were you drinking at that point then? Was it really just tequila, just margaritas, or Probably, pr primarily rum and tequila? Yeah, yeah. So that tequila the, sunrise. One of your one of your products at Castle and Key is the gin. Were you much of a gin drinker before Castle and Key? Yeah, that's another interesting thing. I, I hadn't drink, I hadn't really. Uh, ventured into gin because I was working for a whiskey company. I was their master taster. So my whole world revolved around brown spirits. You were at Brown Foreman, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I, I wasn't really getting into gin. And that's, you know, a similar, uh, similar trend there. Sure. Yeah. What was your experience like at Brown Foreman? What did you um, learn there that carried over into developing Castle and Key, not just as a brand, but as a distillery? Working for that company was uh, an incredible opportunity for me, working in research and development, learning all of their processes and how they ensure the quality of what they're producing, but also the, the consistency of their product batch after batch after batch. Getting into the different distilleries across, across the globe was really fascinating for me because sure. I, I, while I was focused primarily on whiskey, I got to do projects in Belgium and Mexico and they sent me out to California to make wine. It was a, um, 
really diverse set of experiences. So I got a view of the industry that would be uh, hard to get anywhere else. <laughs> it's an incredible company to work for. Their, their values are um, really important to what they do every day, and they make sure. sure that you know that. So they hire people with the same values that value diversity and, and uh, curiosity and, and um, creativity and, and courage and all the C's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I still remember it. Uh, they had me drinking the Kool-Aid, but it was pretty tasty Kool-Aid. Well, it seemed like it worked out for you for the most part, Heck right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't looking for another opportunity when, when this came my way. Sure. And how did this kind of stumble into or fall into your lap, by the way? It fell into my LinkedIn inbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my, my now uh, partner, Wes Murray, and my other partner, Will Arvin, had purchased the site back in April of 2014. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember when he sent the first message my way to try and entice me to come out and, and just meet them. But it took a few months for us to finally connect um, and I think it was really curiosity that got the best of me. Sure. I, I had heard around the uh, through the grapevine at Brown Foreman that these two lawyers that didn't know anything about whiskey had <laughs> bought this dilapidated distillery, and you know, good luck to them. Sure. Um, it's only partially true. <laughs> They're both kind of crazy. I think we all are. You know, everybody thought that we were. Everybody told us that we were for, for taking on this Herculean effort to yeah. revive what was, you know, essentially a walking dead set. Sure. Well, what was the, the renovation process like, the restoration process of the old Taylor distillery like? I mean, was it, were you surprised in any way at the, mm -hmm. you know, how quickly it came together or was, was it really challenging? Was it a day-to-day -day kind of battle with the, the grounds? I am happy to hear you say how quickly it came together because for <laughs> us, it, it really like felt, it. yeah, it, it felt like, well, and I say this to, to people sometimes, you know, I, I was still young in my career at Brown Foreman, truly, um, you know, if you think about the industry as a whole, when I got started over here at Castle and Key, I mean, people still look at me more more rare now than it was when I started, but <laughs> are you even old <laughs> enough to drink? <laughs> That's a good one. That's right? A, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah um, but when I, when I started, it was the beginning of 2015. And we thought by November in 2015 that we'd have the site open, we'd be hosting tours, we'd be making booze, you know, it, it'd all be going swimmingly and um, get a little bit closer and realize, wow, there's maybe a little bit more to it than, than any one of us realized. Sure. You know, I, I had done plenty of process improvement projects, um, created innovative new recipes for um, my former um, employer, but what I hadn't done was build a brand from scratch and, um, you know, define my own recipe, select my suppliers, uh, create the whole process of engineering sure. from, you know, start to finish while rebuilding this beautiful historic site and trying to yeah. decode the engineering and inner workings of what they were doing, sure. you know, almost, almost half a century ago. There was a little bit more complexity to it and, and some big things like utilities and power and a gas line we had to run two miles to get to us that none of us really um, considered right away. But I'm very grateful for the fact that we didn't have all the information because it's quite possible that 
not one of us would have been crazy enough at yeah, the beginning sure. to say, oh, yeah, this is totally worth what uh, 10 times the original budget. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Yeah. Good investors. That's key, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, the thing is, um, the opportunity here has evolved. Our vision has evolved, and it's just been an incredible journey. And the folks that work here are all as passionate about changing the industry and doing something new and being really thoughtful and making the best stuff we can. So, sure. Yeah. Do you feel like you're changing the industry? I feel like when people come to see us here at Castle and Key and even um, the reaction that people have to the gin and the vodka, yeah. we're doing something different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it. we have to touch on it as well, too. You are the most high-profile female master distiller in bourbon. How does that, how do you deal with that? How do you handle that? I mean, is that a, were you ready for that kind of, <laughs> that title? Were you ready for all of the challenges that were going to come with it? And if, what, what were some of the challenges that, that came with it too? It's interesting. I, I had been in the industry for six years at, at Brown Foreman as a, a female working in an engineering position, which is very male-dominated. Yeah. So I was very comfortable in, in that type of environment. Even back in high school, I was in the auto shop class my junior and senior year for half the day. So very comfortable right. in, in groups of um, men, to be honest. I never really saw it that way necessarily. I, I, would, I have been pursuing my oh, passion. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. People do react to me differently. Like I said, are you even old enough to drink? <laughs> 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 but also, you know, you walk up as a, um, you know, early 30s female and people are likely to question whether you have the experience sure. to... And, and, and seeing the scale of the distillery right. to um, be able to pull something of this nature off. But again, I think that the spirit is, is speaking for me so far. I can't wait to um, put some of this brown stuff out into yeah, no the market. Kidding. Yeah, um, It's been fun. You know, the, the, the support that I've gotten through the industry, through other master distillers, um, women working in the industry women consumers, male consumers that have daughters, yeah. people really see the value in, in a psychological shift in thinking that there's any difference between a man and a woman doing this job. Sure. And I think it's interesting, too, that it, it, it's not just for you know, the industry itself or just for who is working towards making bourbon. But also, just at, it, at its core, who is a bourbon drinker? Who are the bourbon drinkers of the world? And by challenging that, that stigma or that notion, I think you are opening the gates for, for other people to really you know, want to try this and, and want to establish themselves in the world. So kudos to you for doing that. Thank you. Sure. Of course. Thank you. Are you inspired when you come to this distillery? Every day, when you see the history and um, the, the and, and how does it inspire you? This place is very magical. It's a very historic place. You can feel the spirit of it, the history of it, as you walk around. It's also unique in its architecture, and and the feeling is 
almost like you've been transported to Europe. Yeah. It's a unique place in, in Kentucky for sure, but I think in, in probably the, the world because of what it stands for. We It's a bourbon icon. It was built by the father of modern bourbon, and right. the milestones hit at this facility not only for the process, but for how we talk about it, how we experience it. Um, it's it's uh, incredible, some incredible footsteps to follow sure. um, along this property and to think about everything that, that has conspired here. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you questioning going, is this the way I want to phrase that? But I think that was a good, it was a good <laughs> approximation for sure. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the bourbon then, because that's what everybody wants to know. Not just when it's going to come out, but what's it going to be like? So uh, let, let's first start off, when is the expected release date for the, the first bourbon distillate from Castle and Key? Well, I mentioned when we were chatting earlier um, that I started at the beginning of 2015, and we thought by November we'd be up and running. Well, it was just about a year after that original timeline, so we started distilling in November of 2016, Right. started barreling in December, and we had some permits still on some of our buildings that needed to be um, pushed through. <laughs> so if you're good at math, then that means that our um, bourbon, our earliest, oldest bourbon and oldest rye just turned two yeah. this past December. Right. And our plan is to keep it at minimum four years, but we don't have a stopwatch on it. Sure. We're not just going to say, all right, four years on, on the dot, it's his birthday, it goes into a bottle now. It, it has everything to do with flavor. Yeah, It's absolutely. such a hugely important first impression for Castle and Key. Definitely. But even more so, I think, for me. You know, I took a big risk sure. leaving a, um, a, a, very, a globally distributed brand to start my own. And I have, I think I've got something to prove. <laughs> but it sounds like you're up to the task. I mean, you're, and, and what I mean by that is not just your confidence, but, you know, just the way that you go, it's got to be right. Mm. So I, I think you're on, on track to, to do that the way that you want to. What about the flavor profile that we can kind of expect from it? Um, what were you aiming for with the, the, the palette on Castle and Key products? So we've got four bourbon recipes that we make. We've got two mash bills, two yeast strains. Wow. And then we have two rye recipes, one mash bill, two yeast, two yeast strains. Mm -hmm. The way I developed our mash bill and selected the two yeast strains was based on a historic bottle of Old Taylor bourbon that was produced here by Colonel Taylor in 1917. It was an antique bottle. Wow. It was the first Old Taylor that my partners and I tasted together when I joined the, the distillery team. And to say that the profile was inspiring, I don't know that it's enough. You know, I had tasted <laughs> antique spirits before, but nothing quite like this. Sure. You know, Old Taylor, and, and I'm sure many of the, the folks that, that follow your podcast n know that it's known for this beautiful sweetness, this butterscotch right. note. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was one thing that was really important to me to bring out in, in our recipe. And Colonel Taylor wasn't a shy man. Uh, he, <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he marketed himself in this place and his bourbon a lot. So it was um, pretty easy to find the fact that 
He preferred white corn. He used a lot of malted barley. So right. we used some of those guidelines to create within. So I didn't want to replicate what Colonel Taylor was pro- producing exactly. I still wanted this to be completely our own with sure. my thumbprint on on it, or signature, rather. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, Quite literally. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, we actually had a little bit of that 1917 bourbon analyzed at a laboratory in Danville. Some, so cool. Some people are probably familiar with Firm Solutions. Yes. The guys mm-hmm. there at Wilderness Trail, super yeah. smart science guys. Um, we like to nerd out together. And <laughs> I sent them a, a little sample of it, and they confirmed, yes, white corn. It had some rye in it, a high percentage of barley. And from that sample, we were also able to identify genetically similar yeast strain. So the, that's crazy. Yeah. So um, that's like our, our most historically based recipe. Yeah. It's 73% corn, okay. 10% Kentucky grown rye and 17% barley. That is a high barley content. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Colonel Taylor actually uh, promoted that he was using at least two times the amount of anybody else in the <laughs> industry. No kidding. Um, we've got, so we've got that one, the traditional um, rye-based recipe. And then we also ha- are making a weeded bourbon recipe. So it's the same percentages, except 10% wheat instead of rye. And when you taste them side by side, it, it's significant, the difference. Uh, and we, we um, have tried both red wheat and white wheat. Mm. We wanted to do our own experimentation to confirm, you know, one way or the other, what we preferred. And I worked for a company that had been doing R&D for decades and this is a whole new property. It's in a whole new environment. The warehouses are different. Our yeah. barrel source is different. So yeah. to ask the same questions to get our own answers was important to me. You know, I've, I learned a lot at my time um, working for Brown Foreman, and they make beautiful spirits, but I didn't want to make, uh, you know, another Brown Foreman spirit. I wanted sure. to make a Castle and Key spirit. So that's the, the sorry, the bourbon. We've got the two yeast strains, and then the rye whiskey recipe. So we're doing all of this different stuff, all of this variety, because you know we're all millennials here. Most of the team, <laughs> <laughs> most of Heck the team yes. is really young, yeah. yeah. And and there's very few of us that sit down and drink. Well, <laughs> I'm not gonna knock your wild turkey, but <laughs> <laughs> all right, <Yeah>. all right. <laughs> there's very few of us that that sit down every night and, and pick up the same bottle. Sure. So you know we wanted to have that variety within our portfolio. Right, so the, right. the rye whiskey that we produce, it's 63% of that Kentucky grown rye, which is, it's got a unique character. Yeah. It's a little spicier than your tr- more typical sourced Canadian or German ryes. Okay. Um, it's more herbal and, f- and floral. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, it's really beautiful. I like it a lot. It's, it's interesting. So I mentioned I've, I have a good rapport with some other master distillers in the industry. One that retired not too long after we took over the operation here has been working with um, one of our contract clients to collaborate on a recipe. Mm-hmm. And I showed some of our Kentucky-grown rye to him. And <laughs> you should have seen the look on his face. He was disgusted. Thought it, <laughs> thought it, I, mean, I mean, after... 40 probably plus years of making the same product day right. after day. Yeah. You're, you're so in tune with just that one thing that any variance is offensive. <laughs> so he was offended. Um, oh but we're gosh. really, really, really happy with the way that the rye is coming Good. along. It's, it's really special. And that'll hit the market a little bit sooner. So we mentioned at least four years for the bourbon, but the rye... 
maybe about a year from now. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, man, <laughs> I can't wait. Well, I, I was thinking about this while you were talking about analyzing the sample from the 1917 Taylor. In as layman terms as you can describe what the analysis process of that is like because I I mean I don't know if I can comprehend you know how all of that is broken down you know whether it's put into a machine or, or, or what is it so what is an analysis of a sample of bourbon like how does that happen <laughs> it depends on on specifically what you're looking for I can't I think they did maybe more than just one test. It was probably definitely a GC. So what the GC does is it basically breaks down every chemical that's in um, a solution that you inject into it. Okay. So it's this big gray box or black box, whatever you know model you buy, right. you inject a sample into it, and what it spits out is a paper with a line that has a bunch of jagged peaks in it. And um, you have some smart science person that takes that... <laughs> line and is able to assign different chemical compounds to each one. Okay. So you know exactly um, what these are, what type of flavors that they produce, and how much is in there. And from that, you can look at data that you have, like like they've done um, fermentations with every yeast strain that they have in their library, which is thousands. And from that, they're able to say, okay, this is a lot like this one. And... Um, Different flavor compounds would be present if there were rye there, but um, not if there were wheat, were wheat there. Sure. And um, yeah, there there are different. It all just comes down to chemicals. I was. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I don't know. I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination. So that is just the craziest thing in the world to me. Yeah. To know that that technology even exists. Right. But, yeah. And they use it for everything. It's it's not just for booze. <laughs> It's the most fun when you use it for booze. Well, sure. I mean, because then you get to, you know, talk even more about it than we already do, right? So let's talk, too, about um, when you're going to know that the bourbon is ready. How often are you tasting the product? Are you um, going in daily, weekly, monthly to to check on it? What's your, your process like with that? Right now, it's a, a little random for us. I'll go in the warehouse a couple times a month and drill a barrel that I haven't tasted before and just get an idea of, of where it's going. I've very strategically placed our whiskey in the longest warehouse of its kind in the world to get some, some data back as quick as possible. Sure. So we're getting ready now that our whiskey is two years old to start on this um, rampage of sampling to get <laughs> everything that we we haven't tasted yet and um, bring it all to the table and see how it is all going and get some good numbers. I've got you know, a much more developed team now where they're all stars. Everybody on our team is incredibly dedicated and passionate and hardworking and smart. Yeah. So um, I can leverage that. I don't have to do it all by myself anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll have a, a certain sampling schedule, probably three months the first sample, and then every six months until we're just swimming in, in too much data. And then we'll back <laughs> it down to um, probably annually we'll be sampling but it's coming along really nicely Good. right now we're, we're super pleased that's really awesome that's exciting to hear too to know that it's going the way that you 
would like for it to. <laughs> maybe even a little bit better, which I feel like I should <laughs> knock on wood. Like yeah, maybe no Colonel kidding. Taylor's watching over us or we're just in a great spot. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You you mentioned the the team that you have behind you too. What was your selection process like in in finding them? Were you able to kind of hand hand pick people, or did they come to you? It's interesting. We we definitely had people that were pursuing us, but it was important to us to pick people with certain character traits. You know, culture is so important to us, and in, in what we're trying to build here, people that are smart and and know how to do the process already were nice, but that, that wasn't really what we were looking for. I didn't want a team of distillers who had been in the, in the industry for decades and, and um, knew one way to do it. I have people on my team that were chefs and musicians in, um, in the automotive industry and um, making algae and all these That's different crazy. things. Yeah, construction. <laughs> it's um, and, and some that are just out of college you know, chemical engineers on, on the crew working in the distillery with me. Um, it's a um, very diverse team, but what it comes down to is, is people that believe in what we're doing and um, care. Yeah. That actually brings up a good question, too, that um, somebody had put forth for, for me to ask you, too, is how do you view this kind of shift of master distillers in the industry who don't necessarily have 30 plus years of experience in the industry. Is it something that we're going to see more of? Do you think that there is this kind of new crop of folks that are going to come up into the game or, you know, is there always going to be that kind of underlying, well, this guy has a whole lot of experience, so he's got to know what he's talking about. And how do you kind of fit into that too? Yeah. So at the time that I joined the team here at uh, Castle and Key, before we had anything going on in the distillery, I had been working for um, my former employer for about six years. So at this point, I have about 10 years in the seat, and we've been distilling for two of them. Um, I think not everybody learns at the same rate of speed. That is and very fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, not to say I'm some, like, bourbon savant, but, (laughs) you know, um, it's interesting when you, when you're passionate about something every minute of the day, you're thinking about it and trying to figure out, you know, what, what else you can learn about it. So I was really, you know, basically working two full-time jobs while I was working for, for Brown Foreman because I wanted to be involved in everything that I possibly could be. Yeah. So I got a tremendous amount of experience. I had the technical background. I, I um, have a pretty good palate, so I think that that set me apart. <laughs> I think there are plenty of, um, of folks coming up in this industry that won't have the opportunity, uh, maybe, maybe that's not the right way to say it. I think, you know, waiting 30 years to be a... Um, um, to get the title of, of master distiller might be, I don't, I don't want to be disrespectful in it in any way to the um, tradition of the industry, but I, I just think the proof is in what you make. Sure. I think that's a totally fair point to, to make. I mean, it's age is only a number. <laughs> time <Yes>. is time <laughs> is not to get too meta, but time is very abstract and everything. So I, I mean, I, I'm on board with that with mm. that sentiment. That being said, though, like, what what is your relationship like with some of the the master distillers that are out there right now, like Fred No and Harlan Wheatley and Denny Potter? 
So you, you um, pointed out the three that I, that I would say I don't know super well. <laughs> <laughs> Denny and I have met a couple times. I, I haven't had a, any significant conversation with, with Harlan. Um, He's a Fred, hard man to pin down. Yeah, Fred Fred and I, I, I know young Freddie um, better than I, I know Fred. Um, we've met a few times, and, and and my parents are very fond of Fred. You know, he's such a a, a character oh, yeah, in this industry, it's and, very and, much like his dad was. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I, I hope that we will get to know each other a little bit better as time goes on. And, um, but you know, I would say like Greg Davis, who was the master distiller at Four Roses, mm-hmm. Brent Elliott, um, Connor O'Driscoll, who just took took over at Heaven Hill. Right. We were very close when we were working for Brown Foreman. Um, Shoot, Jim Rutledge, former yeah. um, Four, Four Roses Master Distiller, has been here um, quite a bit. Yeah. And then, you know, some folks who are in the industry as consultants now that, that were on the production side, plant managers, essentially master distillers without the title, that uh, are seem to be very pleased with what, what, with what we're doing. And, um, you know, it's very gratifying to... And maybe... Rewarding? Shoot. Well, it is it is super rewarding. Yeah. There was another word that I was looking for, like, oh, validating, validating. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And not that, um, you know, I, I trust my palate and I trust what I know, but to have someone who's been in the seat for, you know, almost 40 plus years or yeah. something like that, um, that have been in and out of a distillery every day um, to say, this is good stuff. Yeah. That's incredible. What's your palate like? Because you you've mentioned you trust your palate, um, you know what do you what do you kind of lean towards? What do you gravitate towards in terms of bourbon or whiskey? It's interesting when when I first, of course, made the switch. I was still so um, in tune with the Brown Foreman profile, so I liked a, a spicy, you know, robust flavor profile. Because mm-hmm. a lot of their recipes have a significant amount of rye in them, but as I started to develop my own, and particularly after tasting that historic or antique old Taylor bottle. Um, I have a sweet tooth. There's no doubt, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, the Woodford reserve double oaked is, is one of my favorites for sure, because it's got all that sweetness to it. So, um, you'll, you'll see an infusion of that in, in our brand. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm going to pin us down to one thing. I, like most millennials, like trying new <laughs> flavors and, I, I want to offer something that always has something different to offer, I guess, is the right way to say it. You know, always producing this high standard of quality, but not holding ourselves to one consistent flavor profile. Yeah. You know, being able to embrace whatever characteristics the barrels are expressing in that season or that year and, and put something unique on the shelf. Well, if you're, if you're not drinking Castle and Key... You're not drinking. What What are you, what are you drinking then? Maybe bourbon wise. Bourbon wise, I love Russells. I drink a lot of Russells. Yeah. Um, th- I. And you were knocking my Turkey 101. No, I, I mean, wasn't oh. knocking your Turkey 101. <laughs> you just said you you are consistently drinking the the I'm, Turkey 101. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So that was the only only comment I was making. <laughs> um, I guess. What do I have at home right now? I've got some Willet. I've got some Four Roses. I, I like Japanese whiskey, too. I have some Nika, um, some, some um, single cask. 
Um, I got a little bit of scotch at home. Gosh, I, I still love the Woodford. <laughs> even the, not even, I shouldn't say that, the rye. Um, I worked the Woodford rye? The Woodford rye, yeah. I really like. There's so many good ones to choose from. It's, Knob Creek is nice. You know, <laughs> it's hard. You want to support all your friends, but sure. <laughs> not all of them are making a whiskey I want to drink every day. <laughs> and that's fair. Outside of the, the 1917 Taylor that kind of set you on this path towards what you wanted to do with Castle and Key, what was one of your most formative bourbon drinking experiences that kind of cemented the fact that this is what you wanted to do or this is what you were supposed to be doing? Like being in this industry? Sure. Ah. Or, or just in, in general. In respect be- to Castle and Key? Sure. Okay. That's, that's two different, <laughs> two different, pretty different things. I don't know that aside from the 1917 that there was anything else that I tried that, that really guided, had any um, impact on how we ended up developing the, the flavor profile for our bourbon. Being in the industry, I was very involved in the old Forester single barrel program, as well as uh, the Woodford programs that they had together as a master taster. They, they had me doing the dog and pony show, um, <laughs> which is so much fun. Um, and you know, you get Are to you sure? doing, doing the, like the behind the scenes stuff to get ready for those experiences because I, I wanted to make sure that I tasted every single barrel before we put it in front of a customer because there was no way that it would, it, it would be good for the brand if you rolled out a, a skunk. And, um, you know, it just does happen sometimes. There are barrels that um, either they're coming along slowly or something happened um, in the barrel because it's it's a little bit unpredictable. But being out there in the warehouse by myself, you know, tapping rows of barrels, um, (laughs) you know, 20, 30, 40 at a time, um, just to see what the flavors are like, you hit some incredible flavor profiles. And um, that was really inspiring one time down at, at Woodford, it was a single barrel Woodford double oat. And I loved doing that program. You know, it's a, a batch of Woodford that they were, um, that they, they still do this. They, they batch it all together and then they rebarrel it into other more heavily toasted barrels. Um, so they don't do that program anymore. They've renamed it or um, do something else. But it was this meaty, like smokehouse, juicy, sweet, um, totally unlike any other double oak I had ever tasted. And that was truly magical to me. It, it um, emphasized that no matter how good a job that I do, making sure that the chemical profile coming off the still is exactly identical right. time after time after time. You put it into that barrel, and once nature takes over, you, you, can't, you can't predict what it's going to taste like on the other side, which is one of the beautiful things about it. That's always been one of the things that I've been the most fascinated with about bourbon is that, and, and, and exactly to your point, you can only control so much of it but once nature takes over, it is a completely different animal from anything you could have anticipated. And you've, you've alluded to it a little bit that, you know, you have been surprisingly pleased with how things have, have come out so far. What do you attribute that to? I mean, do you feel like you, it was a, a good preparation that went into 
the whiskey going into the barrel or is it the the hollowed grounds of the old Taylor distillery or what what do you find is what do you typically kind of attribute to that more than anything I think it's it's um, a lot about our process the thoughtful process that we use every step of the the way has been designed selected to create the best flavor possible right so the distillate coming off the still is the best um, white dog that we can make uh, which is pretty good yeah and and it it really um, it gets under my skin a little bit when people say all oh, white dog tastes like gasoline, that because doesn't. that's yeah that's that's forty to fifty percent of your flavor exactly. um, when it comes out the other side of the barrel. So if you're making white dog that you don't want to drink, then <laughs> the barrel's not going to fix it. Sorry to break it to you. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think it, it has a lot to do with our principled approach to the distilling process and and that first step and then once it goes into the barrel sure. we we've put a lot of thought and effort into um, the barrel as well and um, we use Speyside Cooperage in Jackson Ohio every okay. barrel is toasted we use a number three char instead of a number four interesting it's a little bit lighter char yeah. because it doesn't it, it doesn't eat into that beautiful um, toasted flavor layer so we're getting different flavors infused in, into the whiskey. That's and then so we cool. go in at a really low proof. So we enter the barrel at 107 for wow. our bourbon, which also pulls out flavor in a different way more effectively, yeah. extracts sugar more effectively, sure. which, you know, we were going after that sweet butterscotch note, and, um, and we're, we're getting it. So. How much experimentation went into finding that recipe? I mean, were you... Oh. <laughs> a lot, a yeah. lot, yeah. I have um, four... Stills, little mini stills, bought it at like whiskeystill.com or something like that. <laughs> but I had two copper two and a half gallon pot stills that That's I was using so cool. in the laboratory. If you go, you know, way back on, on Facebook, you can find videos of me in the lab um, <laughs> uh, with the still, like talking people through the mashing process and all that good stuff. That was, you know... Back in the early days before we had a brand director, <laughs> she would have, <laughs> I, I hope that she never finds those videos because she'll probably make me take them down. No, I'm just kidding. I hope she's not listening yeah. to this. <laughs> Shh, Caroline, close your ears. <laughs> yeah. Um, or <clears throat> the glass stills. So it got to the point I, I wore out the the copper stills. The, the, the folks that made these maybe thought they were for hobby people. They're not working stills. <laughs> so I, I wore holes in those. I couldn't hold the wow. proof that I was looking for so I had to switch to glass so I went from you know being able to distill two and a half gallons at a time down to two liters at a time okay. so every time I distill a batch of bourbon I get maybe 100 milliliters and I wow. use that to determine whether it's got the broad flavor characteristics that I find interesting or not so I did that oh hundreds of times oh um, with different grain sources, different grain ratios, different yeast strains on top of that. It was um, a fun, uh, kind of arduous process because it's not any shorter on a small scale. It's not a, a shorter process. It's, um, you just get less from it. So it's still, you know, it's about a week from grinding the grain to distillation. And you were doing most of that on your own, all of it on oh, your I own? Oh, I was doing all of it on my own That's at the beginning. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. To the point where we develop, we, um, I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, stuck a fork in, in what the recipe was, would be. It was 
just me in the lab. At the at the tail end of it, we brought on our brand ambassador, Brett Connors, and he was a tremendous help um, doing mashing and, and doing some unique um, um, mashing and, yeah. and distillation, uh, particularly for some of the contract clients whom I developed the recipes for. Yeah. That's really cool. I mean, just to know that you really did build the flavor profile from the ground up on your own. I mean, that, that is fascinating to me and, and really very cool. What's your day-to-day like at the distillery? How often are you here? Are you here days maybe on <laughs> end sometimes? Or what, what's oh, it like gosh, for you? Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I, um, there was a stretch there. When I, you know, pe- people were asking me if I ever went home. They're like, but weren't you here at one this morning? Weren't you here at, <laughs> at four this morning? Weren't, weren't you here at 11 last night? Like, <laughs> um, why haven't you gone home? Um, I, I've slept in my car many times. I've slept up here in the, the uh, leather chairs in the office a time or two. Um, you know, it, it's all been a labor of love. And when you're super passionate about something and, and have a, a, um, a brand new team that really wants to learn, but don't quite have the hang of it yet. And it right. is again, my, my signature there on the bottle. I've got a, um, um, a reputation to protect. So I was working very hard to get the team to the point where they needed to be. I've been able to take a little bit of a breather recently. Good. So I've been, um, you know, traveling around a little bit, making friends, um, you Good. know, awesome. boosting our sales for the gin and the vodka, which is super fun and, and getting creative, um, with some innovations for new products, uh, line extensions, and also figuring out ways that we can have a more inspired, reimagined approach to the, the bourbon production. Yeah. You know, it has pretty specific guidelines, but I don't think that means that, you know, we've done all we can do just yet. Well, I mean, for crying out loud, you walked in today and you were carrying a bag of Indian spices today and you're saying that this is what, you know, I wanted to do next with the gin and who does that? I mean, <laughs> I've never heard of anybody trying to incorporate that into a gin before. I mean, it's kind of out of the realm of what a normal botanical would be. You know, that. I yeah, I've I've made some incredible friends here um, in this world, and one really special person down here in Lexington. There are many special people in Lexington, but um, Sam Four, she's a Sri Lankan chef, and. We were out, we're just friends. We were just talking about stuff. And I was like, hey, guys, can we talk about botanicals for a minute? (laughs) (laughs) And she had all these incredible ideas. And she was like, Marianne, I need to take you to an Indian spice store. And I was like, yes, please. Absolutely. Let's (laughs) do it. So she's teaching me about all these cool flavors. I mean, it's like sweet and spicy and earthy and and herbal and um, fruity all all at the same time. And um, to be able to try these different things, I'm, I'm just stoked. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, I'm excited just to see where it where it goes in the future too. Have you tried the gin yet? Perry? Oh yes. Okay, good. Yes. So, um, it, it, I'm happy you brought you brought that up because it was something I meant to get to as well. I am not a gin or a vodka drinker. My wife is a gin drinker, um, and you know, I I have a couple of gins that I like. You know, Hendrix, which is what Lucy drinks mostly, and. Um, I find to be really good if I do wind up drinking gin. And then I tried Castle and Key, and I was like, yep, this is it. <laughs> I was like, this is the gin for me. Oh, that's so amazing. I um, actually, when, when 
I had a bottle of it that I had you sign too. Um, I didn't know if you opened it. A lot of people (laughs) that that had their bottles signed. I'm glad that you did if you did. Well, you actually signed an open bottle, so I don't know if you knew that or not. (laughs) But I had I didn't recall that part. No, but I had I had tried it before. Um, and I was like, oh, I just I liked it so much that I wanted to, you know, actually buy a bottle of it and, and everything. So if you find a bottle of gasoline key gin, by all means, buy it because it is totally worth it. And I find it to be fantastic. We talk a little bit, you know, in, with, in my friend group about how it's kind of the bourbon drinkers gin. And it just seems to be m- more in line with what our bourbon palate would be. Was that something you kind of were aiming for with it, or was it just kind of a byproduct of the gin? It's interesting. You know, be, before I even really had an idea of what the gin would taste like, we we had this concept of it being a bourbon drinker's gin, but I don't think that we actually understood what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> so what came out the other side was this balanced, nuanced, really flavorful, 106-proof um gin with a backbone that could stand up in any cocktail, but also taste delicious with just, you know, a twist of lemon and some ice. Yeah. Um, and it, it's the reception that it's, it's had from the industry, from folks that make gin, from people who hate gin <laughs> <laughs> has been, um, really astounding. Our sales in Kentucky and Tennessee have just absolutely blown away our our expectations. Um, We knew it was going to be hard launching a a gin in a a brown spirit state and a a bourbon, you know, loving state. But just just like you mentioned, that that feedback is... um, a daily, (laughs) daily, daily reaction, which makes me feel so good. Like, I, I hate vodka, but... Yours is good. Yeah. <laughs> or I, I haven't drink gin drink gin since college and yours is really lovely. Yeah. yeah. It's it's it feels really good. You you mentioned the the two states where you are you're releasing your product right now. Where are you going to be expanding to in the future? That is a great kind of crystal ball question. We have <laughs> Lots of relationships through my partners in in specific states, so they have particular interests in moving to different areas sooner than later, um, particularly so they can get spirits in in their fam their home states. Sure. Um, Wes, in particular, um, comes from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so he's trying to push it up that way as soon as he can get it there. Um, but we're we're going to be smart about it. We still haven't saturated um or you know taking advantage of all the opportunity that we have here because it's it's gone so well we focus mostly on distribution in bars we call that on premise yeah and the off premise has kind of gotten the the short end of the stick however you know we we've expanded production we put in a new 32 inch column still and with the 24 inch we can make the vodka and the gin simultaneously while we're, we're producing our um, whiskey products. So that's kind of a game changer. Yeah. And, and we want to see um, how we'll do with, you know, more, more supply than we need in, in Kentucky and Tennessee before we go from there. Take care of our home states first. There you go. There you go. I want to, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, but what's, what's your greatest fear? with Castle and Key. What's the one thing that you keep coming back to that, you know, your anxiety may not be letting go of? 
with Catherine. <laughs> um, uh, warehouse fires. <laughs> oh my gosh! When when we first started, um, there were several times that there were outlets that caught fire in the distillery. Um, I don't okay. think that that's a problem anymore. So please don't be scared to come visit Castle and Key and take a tour. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean. Just the the kind of um, freak of nature or force of nature accidents that can happen, you, you can't really predict it. We mm-hmm. had this crazy 100-year flood come through a month before we were supposed to open the distillery. Every single pump in the distillery had to be rebuilt. We had oh to um, totally... Um, total uh, air compressor the um, mill was underwater all the electrical panels are going to be replaced our boiler was sitting in water you know it was this devastating thing and our our night night shift crew was here you know trying to battle that um, one of our guys waded through waist high water to turn off um, some some things that were really vital to our process so I don't know. And it's, and it's not something every heavy rain after that flood. Um, it was, it was a, a, a nervous night for me, but, sure. um, I'm just, I, I, I'm just incredibly proud of, of what we've accomplished thus far and yeah. the opportunity for us ahead. If we are collectively moving toward it together, aligned and, um, bought in, I don't think there's anything that we can't do. What's been the greatest challenge in trying to get the distillery off the ground then? The things that we didn't know. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's just been um, giving ourselves enough time to test things properly, um, little bugs here and there, having the right partners. Um, we we have an incredible partner in, in Clark Mechanical, our pipe fitters the electrical folks that, that we use, um, they've kind of evolved over time. We finally got a great one. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of having the patience to work through all of those things and not try and, and push it to push the start button before all the, all the pieces are connected. And I'm sure you were very anxious to get that off the ground because I mean, seeing, almost literally the future laid out in front of you. I mean, gosh, I'd, I would be chomping at the bit too, just to move on to the next thing <laughs> past the, the restoration of the, <laughs> it's, of it's the site. been, you know, it, it's a, been a beautiful process and a frustrating process and really rewarding and also, you know, infuriating in, in moments, but, um, it, it's really easy to, take for granted all of the hard work that we've put in and totally miss everything that, that we've accomplished um, looking toward what's next. So I, I try to slow down and, and appreciate everything that, that we've put in thus far to get to this point. And I don't know exactly where I was going with that. But. <laughs> well, what was, the, what was the moment where you were able to step back mm. and the first time that you were really proud of what you had done? Mm. Gosh, that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> when when we started our still for the first time, the mash that we put through it had been sitting in the fermenter for ten days. 
because I was waiting for this um, industry consultant named Larry Abersole to come to the, the site to help us get this still started. Mm-hmm. Because I, I had never commissioned a, a still on my own before. I wanted to have you know someone there that had experience just in case something happened. Sure. And I'm so glad he was there because the the still like physically started shaking at one point because oh uh, we had some pressure pressure problems. I I would have just been in a panic. So I'm I'm so glad that he was here to help us through that that first commissioning. Um, once we got through that process, when it was time to start up our gin still, every, everything else I felt very comfortable with. And I remember my partner Wes's the, the look on his face when. Um, when I'm, I put the date on the calendar and, and uh, we didn't have any other support but myself, our team, um, how, how proud he looked. Um, and, you know, it, it was kind of just a reflection of, of how I felt, you know, that, that we were really doing this um, on our own. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you see then as the future of Castle and Key? Maybe not necessarily in the long term, you know, because, you know, I was thinking about this as well as I was kind of postulating on this question that Castle and Key has that ring to it like it's almost a legacy brand. So regardless of whether you're thinking 50, 100 years into the future, what, what you know, both sides of the coin, what is, where do you want the brand to grow immediately and... and do you see this as a, as a mainstay in the bourbon industry mm. for years to come? At Castle and Key, we have a, a particular affinity for doing things differently, not just for the <laughs> sake of doing them differently, but trying to reimagine or just conceptualize how things can be done differently you know, not getting stuck in, in tradition, um, questioning it in, in a lot of cases, but to know that it's to elevate the industry still. I think that what Castle and Key has to offer with our experience, with our spirits, is something that could maybe not revolutionize, but at least change the conversation of what, sure. what the way people talk about and, and perceive um, a bottle of, of brown, brown liquor sitting on the shelf. Sure. Um, I'm so excited about what this site could turn into. You know, we have buildings still that haven't been touched, um, continuing to elevate the experience that our consumers have when they come here to site, putting a, a hotel here, um, oh a, a restaurant, a full restaurant, a bar, yeah. um, a place that people will really want to come and hang out at, a true destination, yeah. just like it was when Colonel Taylor built it in, sure. in the 1800s, but, but bringing it back um, in a way that honors his legacy, but also is right for now. Yeah. Yeah. And then with the spirits, you know, kind of the, the same thing, not being scared to embrace the nuance of... of um, each unique release that, that we might put out there and being able to convey to our consumers that differences in flavor don't mean, you know, that it's made inconsistently. It's sure. It's a, a byproduct of the process that is beautiful and, and should be um, 
celebrated. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that um, I, I've been thinking about recently because it was a, a question that was put forth to me by um, one of the listeners of the show um, is is rooted in the tradition of bourbon, and that's bottled and bond. And I feel like it we, we'd be doing a disservice to the legacy of Colonel Taylor, too, by sitting here and not talking about the Bottled and Bond Act. I remember reading recently somebody saying that Bottled and Bond now was more of a gimmick and that it wasn't necessarily something that was vital to the bourbon industry, despite the fact that it was when it was first introduced. How do you view that? Do you, do you think that Bottled and Bond still has a, a viable place in the world of bourbon, or is it a thing of the past that we can put to rest eventually? The spirit of Bottled and Bond, I think, is, is very important to the industry, that we hold that um, value of honesty and quality and transparency um, at the forefront of everything that we do. There are some particularly challenging aspects of the specific regulations that make up the Bottle and Bond Act, one in particular that makes it very difficult and kind of constrains my um, artistic expressional sure. ability is the, the six-month rule. You know, you have to batch within one season. Right. So that's, right. that's particularly challenging for a brand that doesn't have a ton of, of um, stock in the warehouse to play with. If I like, you know, five barrels that um, were produced in this one six-month stretch and I want to um, blend in you know, one random unique barrel from another one, sure. from another season, um, it, it then is no longer a bottle and bond. It may apply to every other regulation. Um, and also, you know, I think that what we can do is a lot like what the winemakers do, you know, going through every detail, talking about even the, the composition of the soil and what right. was happening in the season. We have the ability to, to go even more granular with more detail, more specificity into what developed the specific flavors and characteristics of the whiskey. So it's almost like uh, bo uh, Bottle and Bond 2.0. Yeah. On steroids. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it just doesn't actually um, fit in necessarily the, the Bottle and Bond um, rules. Do you see yourself releasing a bottled and bond product at any point? I think we definitely will. I mean, yeah. it, like you said, it would be a, um, a miss to not honor that huge contribution that Colonel Taylor made to the industry. Right. And, and for us, you know, we talk about it every day, the, um, name of the distillery castle and key, the castle is in my mind, a, just a big symbol of the Bottle and Bond Act. He built it 10 years before the, the Bottle and Bond Act passed as a fortress to protect his whiskey against yeah. an industry that you, could, you couldn't always rely on. So, yeah. So what, what about, um, you know, we, we talked about this at the, the beginning too, what kind of further experimentation do you want to do with your products? Do you see, you know, finishing coming into play? Do you see maybe... You know, a, another mash bill throwing being thrown into the mix at some point too. What do you want to do with the brand in in terms of screw it, let's just try something else. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know if um, we've been talking about this. So, you know, we we're so happy with the way that our our core um, three mash bills have been performing in the warehouse. But transparently, there are way more than three mash bills out there in the warehouse right now. (laughs) You know, not only just that stuff that we've been contract producing for other people, but even just at the beginning of, of our um, story here in the first chapter of the book, figuring out um, the logistics of moving grain through our process and, right. and, t- and training all of these operators. Mistakes were made. You know, we have sure. some weird four grain bourbons and <laughs> and um, all across the board, different um, you know, white corn, yellow corn, sourced rye, um, Kentucky rye, sourced malt, Kentucky malt. Um, Every combination that you can think of, we've got, you know, a, at least a fermenter's worth <laughs> out there in the warehouse, um, and and each one aging in a unique way. So it's one of the exciting things is that we we've, we've already got a lot of um, unique recipes and stories to tell, and a lot of it was well, we didn't know what we were doing, <laughs> but we figured it out. Um, you know, all with our very. Um, um, Specific processes, the attention to detail with, I always talk about times and temperatures because I'm an engineer and I'm a nerd. <laughs> so, you know, each each one of those whole times, the temperatures, um, the pH levels um, that were all the same for each one of these batches. We just might have had a little bit of yellow corn left in the silo when sure. we got in our white corn truck. So it, it's not anything like catastrophic <laughs> and that, that would um, make a bad whiskey or, or it wouldn't have even gone into the barrel. But we do still want to want to do some experimentation and in an intentional way, you know, not just, oh, we slipped up and pulled the wrong slide gate. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I want to try a lot of things. And there are some things that Probably won't share <laughs> on the, in the fine. blog, That's fine. but you know things that that I haven't ever heard of being done before. And I mentioned um, Kashasa earlier, because yeah. I think it's a, a fascinating um, concept to to embrace all of these different types of woods. The cooperage that we use, Speyside, they're they have a large used rail cooperage in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. And I've been there to visit them. I took our, our team of warehousemen to learn from their master cooper and get a little uh, barrel repair uh, course, which they didn't include me on. But I was uh, <laughs> I was walking around with their head head guy um, looking at all these unique barrels, so I was well entertained. But what I found while I was there, they have such um, tremendous contacts around the world with different spirits producers, um, you know, selling them bourbon barrels, but also purchasing back used barrels from them so that they can resell it. So having access to all these incredible um, different types of woods or different spirits that that these barrels have held, um, I'm stoked. You know, it's, um, I think gone are the days that everybody is just um, finishing in a a used bourbon barrel. There's such a a wide array of beautiful flavors out there to, to tap into. So in the spirit of cachaça and maybe using <laughs> some of those Brazilian rainforest woods for certain projects, um, that's that's something that's super interesting to yeah. me is, is um, finishing, particularly in gin, um, but we will be playing with it in the, the whiskeys for, for sure, I have no doubt. You earlier made a statement about the, the process of creating your, your product and it being your creative, your artistic 
process or your artistic license. Do you kind of find or, or view, maybe not necessarily as a whole, but more importantly, the way that you have crafted Castle and Key as your art form? Is it an art form? It's interesting. I think what I've learned about myself, actually since evolving through this project at Castle and Key, is that I was a really creative kid. Yeah. And then I felt like it got beat out of me during engineering school. <laughs> but then once I started working back in, in this industry and giving, given the, um, the license to try unique things because you don't have to worry about, you know an explosive reactor. Um, <laughs> you can just drink what you make. If it doesn't taste good, you spit it out. Um, <clears throat> um, it's shown me that I do have a little bit of uh, left brain and right brain. Sure. So I think I'm, I, 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 I would consider what I do um, artistic. There is, uh, and, and to go to the, the length to say that each batch that we come out with could be considered, you know, a, an, an art in itself. You know, it, it's um, an expression of nature and the, the beauty of the ingredients, but also an expression of my own journey, um, which I think is translated into a lot of different art forms. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one more question. We'll kind of get things wrapped up. Um, what is the one thing that you want people to know about Castle and Key more than any? Because, you know, there, there's so much that is new with Castle and Key. Your bourbon's still on the way. Year two, maybe five, you know, it depends on, you know, when it's ready. But when somebody says, what is Castle and Key? Or why is Castle and Key? What's your, your answer? that what we really hope is by telling our story and being really thoughtful about the brands that we make that we can inspire people in their own lives um, to pursue things that that maybe people were telling them were impossible so maybe not so much about what I want you to to think about um castle and key but how it, it's a reflection of a journey that was maybe never supposed to happen <laughs> <laughs> you know this this site was passed up for nearly half a century everybody thought it was impossible but the the team of um crazy visionaries that that started this process maybe we were just too naive to to know you know, what we were up against, but somehow we made it happen. I think that's a pretty good yeah. <laughs> little mantra to, to live by. Marianne, thank you so much for sitting down with me for the show. It's been a real treat having you on. Perry, this has been a pleasure for me. So do you have anything that you want to plug before we get off social media or appearances maybe that you're going to be featuring? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to be um, a few different places. Um, the New Orleans Bourbon Festival, I'm going to be down there doing a women's panel. That's cool. in March. 
Um, there's a lot of stuff (laughs) (laughs) that I can't think of off the top of my head. I am so fortunate that we have a really awesome PR team and our brand director, Carolyn Casson is just a rock star and she keeps me straight somehow with the bajillion things that she has on her plate. So I'm lucky that I don't have to keep all of this on the top of my mind. But if you follow us at (laughs) Castle and Key on Facebook and Instagram and, um, Myself at Marianne BMD, Bourbon Master Distiller, um, not medical doctor. <laughs> um, you can, you, you'll find out about events um, that way as well. Awesome. Well, if you want to follow us on social media, we are at My Bourbon Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm also at PRitter1492, um, pretty much across the board. Uh, if you would like to uh, become a patron of the show, you can head to patreon.com slash mybourbonpodcast for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, that really does help us out. You get bonus things like uh, bonus episodes every month. Um, February, you're actually going to be getting two. So <laughs> keep that in mind. Um, let's see, what else? Bourbonshop.threadless.com is where you can find all of our apparel and merchandise. And then uh, five-star rate and review on iTunes, please. That really does help us out, reaching new people. Tell your friends about the show, as always. Um, that does help. One more time, Marianne. Thank you for being on. Thanks, Perry. Absolutely. (laughs) I will see you next week, but until then, I'm Perry, and this is my bourbon podcast. (laughs) 